back as we're, we're here for Memorial Day weekend. Uh, a few years back, uh, when Dakota Fritz was here and he was working as uh, our pastoral assistant, um, we, had a, we were helping out with the Memorial Day service that happens down at the Rural Cemetery in Alfred, which, by the way, 11 o'clock tomorrow, if you'd want to be there to honor both those who have uh, given their lives for our country as well as the veterans that uh, will be there as well. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to, to do that for the community and also to uh, pray uh, for uh, what God is doing in our country. But that aside, we did this a few years ago, and I remember Dakota was, giving, was given the responsibility uh, by Pastor Ken Kroniger to read a description of a bunch of the battles that took place in World War I. And uh, needless to say, he got the printout. It was three or four pages long. Uh, and he starts reading it, and he comes to me and he says, I can't. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Like most of these names of these battles are in French or in different other languages. He's like, I don't know how to pronounce all of them. And I told him, you're just going to have to do your best. And I remember as he read through the list of all of the battles that were in World War One and the victories that were had by the Allies at that point. He goes through that and he's talking about it. And I mean, if he ever listens to this sermon, he's going to be mad at me for saying this. But let's just say he butchered it pretty badly. Um, not his fault, but it was interesting that we did that, and the amount of pride that that, the whole point of that was not to make Dakota feel embarrassed, the whole point of that was that we were rehearsing the victories that have been had by our troops in the past, and it was focusing on World War I because it was an anniversary of, uh, of World War I, and that's what the focus was, uh, but we could do the same thing with any of our battles throughout our history, and think about history class, and you can go through, and if we started to list all the battles that we had victory, that America had victory in, we could be here for a very long time. Uh, and uh, honestly, uh, we're not going to do that today, but what we're going to see is something happens like that uh, for Israel. Uh, in the book of Joshua, we're going to see a list of all the, uh, a, a look back to all that God has done, and then it's also, we're also going to see what God is doing. Uh, and keep it in mind, this is not nationalistic, this is not Israel remembering how good they are, but it's remembering what God has given. So we are going to be in Joshua chapter 11, which is where we were last week. We're going to start in verse 23. And we're going to go all the way to 21 verse 45. Ten chapters, um, and rest assured, I'm not going to read them all. Okay, so uh, that I know some of you would like that. Uh, but speaking of butchering names, I'm not going to try to read all the names of the kings and all of the different uh, countries that are given to the Israelites. Uh, I would encourage you on your own time to read this section. Uh, and uh, in a minute, I'm going to tell you what this whole section really, it all boils down to 10 chapters that are going to show us one central theme. And it can seem like it's really boring to read all of it because it's just a list of all the kings that have been defeated. And then it's a list of all the lands that were given to Israel. What part of Israel, which tribe of Israel got which part of the land. And it seems very boring, I'll be honest with you. because And it's hard to read because there's a lot of names that we don't really know how to pronounce. Uh, but... I hope by the end of today you'll see that this section of scripture, although is a history and is a a showing of of the allotment of land and it can be very tedious to read, it is actually showing us one central theme that cannot be forgotten and I believe is the exact point of why we're told all of this in the book of Joshua. It surely is to remind Israel of what God has done and the victory that they've had, but I believe it's to remind us today of something very important as well. And so we'll get to there in just a moment as we go uh, to the book of Joshua. 
Uh, but as we always review every, each week, for those of you who haven't been with us or for those of you who may for, have forgotten, uh, so far in Joshua, through the first 11 chapters, we've seen that Israel, uh, under the leadership of Joshua, has been called to have courage by actively trusting in God's promise to give them the promised land. And they've showed courage, and not courage in their own strength, but courage in trusting in God and his strength. We've seen them cross the Jordan River uh, in faithful obedience, uh, that they took time to remember what God had done, and they celebrated the covenant, the promise that God had made with them. And they crossed the Jordan River on dry land, a miracle during a flood stage. And then we also see more miracles happen as they go into the promised land of Canaan. Uh, God declares his presence and purpose as he gives victory over Jericho and and Ai and uh, other nations. God shows that he is the most powerful one. He shows that he is the one that is with Israel and he shows that he is the one that is giving victory because of his great power and his great glory. And he wants the world to know he is the glorious God of Israel. We've seen that he is throughout this process as, as nations who are steeped in sin have been judged that we see God has shown his justice, his judgment, but also his mercy and his faithfulness. Not only to Israel, but to those who aren't of Israel, such as Rahab and even the Gibeonites as they have made uh, their alliance with Israel. And we saw last week, above all else, as we, as we look at all of this, what we've seen so far in Joshua 1 through 11, is we see that God is given all the credit as Israel conquers the whole of the promised land. God gives Israel the promised land, but we can't lose sight of who the hero is. The hero is not Joshua. The hero are not the Israelites. The hero is God himself who gives victory and is the true conqueror of the promised land. And Israel is simply there to follow. As God fights for them, they follow him, and he gives them victory because of their faithfulness and because of his greatness. And so that's what we've seen so far through the book of Joshua. Obviously, there's a lot more detail in there that I didn't go back to review. I would encourage you to read the whole book again to get back to this place of understanding all that has happened so far. The victory that Israel has had is as a result of God's hand upon them. And that continues today as we look at the next 10 chapters of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 11, and as I said, we're not going to read the whole passage here. I may read a few snippets here and there, um, but I would want to start actually at the end of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I want to start in in chapter 21, verse 45. Chapter 21, verse 45. And this, I believe, is a summary statement of all that happens from the end of chapter 11 all the way through the end of chapter 21. And this is what we read in chapter 21 all the way to the end, verse 45, it says this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. I think you can isolate and, and, and pare down all the way, all these ten chapters, down to this one verse that God gives us here at the end of chapter 21. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All have come to pass. All came to pass. Here is the main idea of the ten chapters that we're looking at today, from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 21. The truth is, God fulfills his promises. God is the ultimate promise keeper. And I know this isn't the first time we've talked about this. Because all through Joshua, we've seen God make a promise and God follows through. Because God keeps his promises, we can trust in 
him. And God always keeps his promises. And as we look at these chapters today, as we look at 11 through 21, we're going to see that all that we read all points to this one central theme, that God has worked in a way that he has fulfilled his promises to the people of Israel. And we can have confidence today, as we'll look at at the end of our sermon today, at the end of our time, that if God is faithful to his promises for Israel, God is faithful to his promises for all of us. God is faithful to his promises for all. And that's what we can't lose as we read the book of Joshua, and even now, especially as we read and think about and look at these ten chapters here in Joshua. So in chapter 11, verse 21, through uh, chapter 12, verse 24, this is where we start. And what we see in this section is very simply, Israel gained full control over all of Canaan. Israel gained full control over all of Canaan. And we're going to see in just a moment that this does not mean that all the people have been defeated and driven out. It simply means that there is no lasting military problem that they are able to have complete control over the land, and although there are still Canaanites that are living, they are not posing a problem to Israel. It's just like any other occupation. There might be people remaining, but that doesn't mean that they have any power. And so that's kind of where we're at now. Israel has the power. They have the land. There are no kings left, as we'll look at in a minute. There is no military power to go come against them at this point. And so Israel has gained full control over all of Canaan. So we see that 1121 through 1224. Uh, what do we see in 1121 and 22? Uh, and uh, we see, we read this last week, but I didn't focus on it, so I wanted to hit on this. Uh, chapter 11, verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There is none of the Anakim left in the land and the people of Israel, or in, of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ash, in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. All right, so uh, first of all, we're going to see, by the way, as we look at this last section, this almost gives us our, our outline for today, by the way. As we look at verse uh, 21 uh, through 23, uh, we see that the first thing we're looking at, Israel gained full control over all of Canaan. And then we're going to see in this verse, it talks about Joshua giving an inheritance. That's going to be our second point today, that the land is distributed. And finally, point three is going to be where it says the land had rest from war. And so in that, even in those last verses that we just read is our outline for today. But we're on this idea that Israel gained full control, and we see that first thing that's mentioned is that Joshua drove out the Anakim. The Anakim, what are these people? Who are these people? Uh, now, interestingly enough, if you'll remember back to the book of Numbers, uh, Moses sent 12 spies into the land, and 12 spies came back, and 10 said, the land we can't take. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's everything we, we would imagine, but yet we cannot take it. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that came back saying, yes, it's a beautiful land, and God will give it to us. But those 10 spies, one of the reasons that they said they couldn't take the land were because of the, the people who were like giants, now, as you look back in history, and I won't do the whole study for you this morning because of time, but I would encourage you to look it up. You can even go online and just ask who are the Anakim, and they'll tell you who they are. But these were giants of the land. These were 
eventually, actually, one of the descendants of Anakim is going to be Goliath that we'll see David fight uh, in, uh, as we go on through Scripture. So, uh, so what we see here is these giants that kept Israel out of the land in the beginning. They're one of the main reasons that the ten spies says, let's not go in. They're too big. We can't handle it. We won't, we won't win. They'll, they'll beat us. Now Joshua goes in and he defeats the Anakim. The ones that kept them from the promised land. Now it's interesting that this is the last group that's talked about here. It's almost like things have come around full circle. The disobedience of Israel to not go into the land because of the giants of the land now has come around full circle and Joshua has taken those same people and has destroyed them. Now, you're going to get a little confused here, but I want to say the other piece here, and you see this on your outline, in chapter 14, verses 12 through 13, we read about Caleb, who was the other spy that went into the land that said, yes, we can take the land, if you remember that. But if you go over to chapter 14, Uh, And look at verses 12 and 13. It says this. Now, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of uh, Jephunneh, for the inheritance. Okay, wait a minute. Now this says Caleb drove out the Anakim. But I thought earlier here it says Joshua. This is not a contradiction, although some people will try to say it is. It's actually pretty simple, even as the verses we just read. Caleb was the one who went into the land and defeated the Anakim, but who did he do it under the authority of? And that was under the authority of Joshua, chapter, chapter, verse 13 of chapter 14. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb. See, Caleb is getting, or Joshua is getting credit because he is the leader of Caleb, but Caleb was the one who actually defeated the Anakim. But whether it was Caleb or Joshua isn't the point here. The point is that God has defeated this enemy that was the one that was keeping them from the promised land in the very beginning. I won't stay here very much longer just to say that God obviously gave victory here. These men were too big, too strong for Israelites. They were looked at as bugs in in sight of these giants, and yet God gave them victory. Then as we look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, and here's where I'm not going to read because there's lots of names here. Uh, 12 uh, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that uh, Moses defeats the kings east of the Jordan. Uh, Moses defeated kings east of the Jordan, all right? And then we're also going to see that Joshua defeated kings west of the Jordan in verses 7 through 24. So chapter 12 is a list of all the kings that have been defeated, all the kings that God has given victory. It was Moses on the east of the Jordan before they crossed, which we'll see a map here in a moment. I hope so. I'm hoping the map's going to work. All right, we're going to see. If you can get to that map, if it comes up, if it doesn't, we'll live. Um, Okay, it's not showing up. That's all right. Ah, That's a bummer. All right, I had some maps to show you, but I guess we're not going to do that today. That's fine. Um, But what we see is on the east of the Jordan River, uh, Moses had some victories over the kings over there, and this was going to be part of the land that was going to be settled by two and a half tribes that we'll see a little bit later. And Moses, with Israelite, you know, with God's strength, the Israelites behind Moses, they, we have it, we have it. Oh, great. All right, so over here, uh, if you see, you're going to see, these are some of the, these dots here are going to be showing the different, the different cities, the different places. But this is the, this is the Jordan River, okay? This is the Jordan River. So we're talking about everything east. So we've got Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, okay? They're all going to get some of this. This is where Moses had victory, if you think about it, over here, 
is about where they were crossing from Egypt, if you remember this. And then they had this Kadesh Barnea problem and, and they didn't really trust God to go into the nation. So God ends up sending them over here and they're wandering around for a while, 40 years. Then they come back here, somewhere in this area. Right here is Jericho, by the way. Okay, So right in this area is where they start their conquest. But before they even go over, this is what Moses settled. And this is what Moses defeated the kings of. So on the east of the Jordan, Moses uh, defeated those kings, as we're told in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Then we have all these dots all over the place. Uh, all, you know, these, this, and this is actually the wrong, I know what's going on here. This is actually the wrong map, but that's okay. That's okay. I've, no, it's not on you. Uh, I had two maps in here. One of them, this one works for both. It's okay. Because the dots were supposed to show the kings that were defeated. And these are not the kings that were defeated. These are just cities. But anyway, so this is west, all right, if you don't know your... So everything, here's the Jordan River, everything this way, okay? That's what Joshua comes in and defeats the kings of, all right? And we'll see this picture again later as I show you the next point. Yeah, I wish my first picture would have come through. That's okay. All right. Don't blame yourself. It's probably my fault. All right, so... Moving on, so now we've seen chapter 11, chapter 12. We've seen that Israel has gained full control over all of Canaan. Now the second point we're going to look at today is seen in verses thir- or chapter 13 all the way through 21. And this is that the land is distributed to all of Israel. The land is distributed to all of Israel. And as I said, I'm not going to read all these chapters. It talks about which tribe gets which part of the land. So I'm just going to give you some general summary statements. Uh, and the first one I want to make, though, in chapter 13, 1 through 7, uh, is an interesting point to make. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, what God basically says, what we're told in Joshua, is that there is still land to possess and there are still people that have not been conquered. And you'd say, wait a minute, I thought God already conquered the whole land. Well, this 13, 1 through 7 is going to be key as we even look at the book of Judges. What happens here is God says, you are in full control of the land and Moses, or Joshua, as he gives and distributes all of the land out to the people, even gives the areas that still have Canaanites there. But the understanding is, uh, and we'll look at, uh, I'm trying to figure out where it says this, uh, somewhere in 13 here, it's going to say uh, that God is going to be the one that will still give the land to the people. All right, and this is the theme we see through these verses, that God is going to give the land to the people. Even the land that is still waiting to be conquered, God will give to Israel. The promise is as good as gold. It's already there, and they have complete control. And so what I want to say is all land is given in faith in God's working. In faith. Israel is going to have faith that God is going to continue to drive out the Canaanites out of the land. That it's not going to stop just because the war has ended, but it's going to continue because God will continue to drive out the Canaanites so that they can have even more domination of the land. Now, spoiler alert, we get to the book of Judges, and what we're going to see is that Israel doesn't follow God's commandment to continue to drive the people out. And even though God has already given them the promise and said, the land is all of yours, we will continue to drive out the rest of the people, Israel gets lazy, they sit back, and they don't follow God. They don't obey. They don't obey his promise, and in Judges, they get in all sorts of trouble because of that. And I don't know if Judges is where we're going next. If we are, you'll see a lot of that. If not, read Judges. It's a crazy book. 
But as we continue to think about what's going on here, the land is distributed. So even the land that may have not been conquered yet is still distributed in this inheritance that is given to all of Israel. We're told here in verses 13, in chapter 13, 8 through 33, that Moses allotted land east of the Jordan to two and a half tribes. I already showed you that on that map. See, there's two and a half tribes that wanted to stay east of the Jordan River. They didn't want to go all the way into the promised land. They were happy where they were. And so Moses gave them the land. And that was, again, um, and I don't remember, can we go back to that? Yeah, right there, perfect. So that's East Manasseh, okay, that's half of the tribe of Manasseh. Tribe of Gad is right there. Tribe of Reuben is right here. So two and a half tribes get east of the Jordan, all right? And then Joshua, so after Moses did that, then Joshua goes across the Jordan, of course, and allots the land west of the Jordan to the rest of all the tribes. And so I know you can't really read this that well, but you've got Simeon, you've got Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, uh, Dan, West Manasseh, the other half of the Manasseh tribe, Issachar, Zebulun, Nephtali, Asher. I think that covers all of them. All right, all right so this is, these are the other, you know, ten and a half tribes. All right, so, um, and as he gives that land, then that includes a couple different things. In chapter 14, it includes land given to Caleb. We already looked at that. Caleb, interestingly enough, in chapter 14, we're told why Caleb gets his own inheritance, because nobody else is mentioned by name. But actually we see here uh, in verse 14 of chapter 14, Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Apparently, there was something so special about Caleb as he followed the Lord that he wholly followed the Lord from the time that he was a spy that was sent into the land until now when he's defeating the Anakim. We see that Caleb is, a, is someone who has devoted himself to the Lord and as such, and I believe as being one of those two spies that did not come back with a bad report, God gives him the blessing of his own inheritance. So we see that even part of the inheritance of all the tribes is Caleb's land. We see it in, in chapter 20. It includes cities of refuge. Cities of refuge, if you haven't studied these, um, there was a law in the land under Moses that if, if someone were to kill someone, that the, the closest of kin would be allowed to, to enact capital punishment upon the person who killed. So the murderer, the one who killed, would be allowed to be killed by what we call the blood avenger. The blood avenger was someone who was given the job to oversee capital punishment, given permission through the law, to then take care of someone to to really execute someone who had murdered someone in their family. Now, cities of refuge, where do these come in? This is for the situation when two people maybe get in a fight, maybe there's an accident, and someone dies as the result of someone else's action, but it wasn't intentional. That's not considered murder in the Old Testament. That is considered what we would call it manslaughter. And that is not punishable by death. Okay, so a city of refuge is where that person who has been accused of killing someone by accident or not on purpose or even if they have done it on purpose but they want to go to trial. They go to the city of refuge. And there are cities of refuge all over the land. They are, there's a whole a bunch of them. You can read in chapter 20 where they are. And these are specific cities of refuge where people who have committed uh, crimes of murder or manslaughter can go to seek refuge. It's also where the Levites would be living, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the Levites, as the priests and as the religious officers of the law, would be there to protect 
the accused. And they could go through the, the proceeding of a trial, and then it could be decided whether the avenger of blood indeed had the right to take that person's life or not. Um, now, I just want to rabbit trail. Okay, all of this, this, this is not prescriptive to us. Okay, if you know somebody that uh, has done something and has murdered somebody in your family, I pray that hasn't happened. But if that is the case, it is not your job to go find them and kill them. Okay, that is not how this works. This was in Old Testament law. Uh, now in the New Testament, we're told that that's the government's job. Okay, so we don't, we don't enact judgment. Not only is it the government's job, but ultimately it'll be God's jo- job in the end. He is the ultimate avenger. And we don't need to take vengeance for ourselves. So I just wanted to say that before somebody goes out and does something stupid. All right, so the last thing is this, the, the inheritance over all of the land includes cities given to the tribe of Levi. Cities are given to the tribe of Levi. If you remember the map, the map did not include a section for Levi. Why did it not include a section for Levi? Well, if you look back at the law of Moses, it's very simple. that The Levites were in charge of the tabernacle. They were the religious people. They were the tribe that were given the job of making sure that the worship of God was done right and done well. And they weren't given a land to inherit. What they were literally given were the tithes of the people would go to the Levites. And they could live in these cities that were decided for them. And the tithes of all the people of Israel would go towards helping the Levites live. That would be their inheritance. So that the Levites could be more uh, nomadic, if you will, especially at the time of the tabernacle. Because that's what they were taking care of. That was their main responsibility. So although Levi didn't get an inheritance of land, the Levites did get an inheritance in the sense that they were receiving the tithes of the people. And they also had cities that were for their use. And so we see all of the tribes are covered here. That Joshua allots all of the land uh, to the, the west of the Jordan to the people of Israel. All right, so that's, we just bro- breezed through like nine chapters. You can read those, but all that we see there is exactly what I've just talked about. There's the inheritance happening. And then the last point we're going to look at this morning. God, Israel gained full control over all of Canaan. The land is distributed to all of Israel. And then we see the last point, that is God gives rest to Israel. God gives rest to Israel. If you remember chapter 11, verse 23, very simply says this, and the land had rest from war. And the land had rest from war. Surely this was not the end of all wars. Uh, There would be more war. There's wars with the Philistines. There's war with other groups that Israel fails to drive out. But for now, after a long campaign, after the war, now the war is ended and they can take possession of the land and there's no more fighting at this point. And so we see God gives rest to Israel over in chapter 21, which is at the end of this passage, verses 43 through 45, 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it. We've seen all that already. And then they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. God gives rest from war. This is a promise that he had given to Moses, a promise that he had given to even all the elders of Israel. And now that promise is coming true. There is rest. There is peace in Canaan. There is peace in Canaan. And that's what I just read. There is no more fighting. God has given complete victory to the point where there is no more fighting to be had. So there is peace that God has given. 
The land was given to Israel as God had promised. We looked at that. The land itself, the promised land, the, the, what God said to Moses, what God said to Israel when they left Egypt, I'm taking you back to your promised land. What God said all the way back to Abraham when he said, this is the land I'm going to give you. Now God is coming through and he is showing his promise to be true. And the land he promised all the way back to Abraham is now being given to Israel and his promise is being realized. In fact, then we come to our last verse um, that we read, uh, and uh, we see that God has given all the enemies into their hand in verse 44. It continues in 45. Not one word of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. God's promises to Israel were kept completely. God didn't hold some back. He didn't say, well, you weren't quite good enough to get all of it. All right, As we've said, there are still people that need to be driven out, but the whole of the land is Israel's. Israel has complete control. God has fulfilled his promise to the house of Israel. It has not failed. All, it says, all came to pass. Not just some, not just part. But this is all had come to pass. God had given the inheritance to Israel that he had promised Abraham so many years ago. And so now we see God again is showing that he, going back to our main idea, God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises. I know this section of scripture can be hard to read, and as I said before, it can plain be boring. And I know even today, as we even had to talk about it, some of it is very academic. And I understand it's very academic, it's geography. Some of you saw a map and you automatically shut down. I get that, okay? Um, I understand But what I don't want us to miss is even in the midst of looking at a map, even in the midst of looking at all the names of all the tribes and all the names of all the lands and all the names of all the kings, all of this can overwhelm us. But let's not forget what it's all about, and that is that God has fulfilled his promises to Israel. The promises that he had given to Abraham really hundreds of years before now were being realized as Israel takes possession of the land that had been given to them. So how does that relate to our lives? Because we don't have lands to possess, right? We don't, we're not waiting for God to tell us uh, which section of almond we're going to receive. Uh, or Hornell or wherever you may live. But there are promises that God has given us. God has given us promises. And here's my question to all of us. And there's three parts of this question. My question to all of us who are here today is that do we have faith in the promises of God in Jesus Christ? Do we truly have faith that the promises that God has made, specifically through Jesus Christ in our lives, those promises that he has given, do we truly believe them? Do we truly trust him? Do we trust that he is a God who keeps his promises, that all of them don't fail and that all of them come to pass? And I would say if we truly believe that God is a God of his promise and he will follow and he will lead us to his promise, that we will follow him and our lives will reflect that. But I think many of us live in a life in which we are doubting God's faithfulness. We are doubting his promises. We're starting to wonder if God even knows what's going on and start to wonder if God really even cares. But there is truth through scripture that we can see. Have, do, have you had faith? Do you have faith continually in the promises of God in Jesus Christ? The first promise that we need to ask about, the promise of eternal life. John 3.16, all of you know it. Many of you have memorized it. If you haven't memorized it, you've at least seen it at a football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but will have everlasting life, eternal life. 
Life that lasts forever. Life that will never end. Life that starts now and will continue on forever. True, real life. A relationship with God that gives you real life. Not the life that this world offers, but life that God offers that starts now and will go forever and ever and ever and ever. And we can't imagine this, but this is the promise that God has given. This is not the only place in Scripture. It's not just John 3.16. We've looked at other verses, even 1 John, and in other places where God is very clear that eternal life is, is available. A relationship with God that will last forever is available. Why is it available? The rest of the Bible tells us, the New Testament, the Gospels, they tell us that Jesus came. Jesus Christ, Son of God, God himself, came as a, as a man to this earth, lived a perfect life as a man, as God then gave his life on the cross. He died for us. He shed his blood for us. He did that so that we didn't have to face the punishment of our sin, which is to be eternally damned to hell, eternally punished in hell. The opposite of eternal life. That is what we deserve because we've all sinned. We've gone against God. We've walked away from him. But Jesus came and he died to take our punishment, our place, by shedding his blood for us. And as he shed his blood on the cross, he died on the cross, and he took the punishment of all of our sin so that if we believe in him, if we believe in his death, if we believe that he indeed has given his life for our sins, and we ask him for forgiveness, he will grant that through his blood. And he has the power and the authority to do that because he rose again three days after he died. He rose again. He is the only, the only God, the only symbol of worship that we have in all religions today because he's the only one who's alive because he's the only true one. And so we trust in Jesus and in the promise that if Jesus was willing to come and give his own life and then rise again, he was showing us that his promise is good, that God is a promise keeper. And Jesus has shown us that. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Have you accepted the promise of God through Jesus Christ of eternal life? Or are you still sitting here trying to live life on your own? That you're steeped in sin and you know your life is spiraling downward. There is hope. God has promised there is more for you. There is eternal life. If you will turn to him, turn away from your life of of sin and their life of selfishness, turn towards him in faith and ask him to forgive you and he will and he'll give you real life that'll never end. That's a promise we can cling to. And even if we're already saved, we've we've already accepted that in our lives, that should change the way we live. That this eternal life that we're living now that we'll be able to live forever, we can live because of his power and his love and his promise and that should allow us to live for him. The next thing Jesus himself, before he left, his last words really were this. In Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So my question is, do you trust and have faith in the promise of Jesus' presence? In the promise of his presence? God, had, God was present with Israel. He verified that time and time and time again. And we're told that God is present with us. For those of us who know Jesus, he is present. He is here. He is within us. We are in him. He is present and his presence was promised to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. We are told this to be true. And yet so many times we can live like we're separate, that somehow God is over there and I'm over here. But Jesus is present with us all the time. That gives us strength when we have times of trouble. It should give us uh, conviction in times of sin. It should give us hope and love in times of hardship. Jesus is with us, and we know that to be true. We're told that throughout Scripture. Do we really believe it? 
God is a promise keeper. And if Jesus said that he's going to be with us always, then he is with us. Whether we like it or not, he is with us. Then the final promise this morning, and I want to read a passage. And we'll read more of the surrounding passage in our benediction today. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. Second Peter 1 through 3. I'm sorry, 3, 1 through 10. Second Peter 3, 1 through 10. The last promise that God has given us that we are still waiting on, his promise of his return. Do we have faith in the promise of Jesus' return? Second Peter chapter 3. Now, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up, your, by, <clears throat> stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and of the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long, long ago and the earth was formed out of water and, by, and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world then, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the Lord one day is as of a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, that, wishing that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Second Peter. Peter here writes, as God inspires him, as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write, that there is a promise that is still coming, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is coming again. And so when we look around this world, and this has been on my mind and my heart recently, as we look around this world and we see it literally spiraling towards hell, when we see all the things that are coming out and everything that is happening that is so sinful and everything that is so against God, and we see it continuing, and we start thinking, what is going on? Why is God allowing this to happen? I don't know that answer, but what I do know is that he's coming again and he's waiting until everyone that that will and everyone that can will have come to know him. And once that happens, then the destruction will come. The, the final wrath and judgment that we've talked about happening even in Joshua will come to this world of disobedience. But God is not slack. Jesus is not slack concerning his promise. You see, the world says, where is he? He's not coming back. Everything's the same. Everything's going the same way it always has. Nothing new under the sun. We just keep going round and round and round. That's what the scoffer says, but yet some of us even have that same thought. Well, Jesus, you've been saying you're coming soon for over 2,000 years now. Where are you? But we see that Jesus, he will be coming again. That the end of this world and the judgment of sin and the redemption of ourselves is coming. Second Peter 3 tells us this with no question. It says, look, Jesus is coming back and we can have trust in that. We can have hope in that. We can enjoy the understanding that God is coming back for us. In John 14, we're told that 
Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and he will return for us so then he, we can be with him forever. That is the truth that we can cling to. And I'm going to get ahead of myself. I was going to read this for the benediction, but I need to read this now. Right after the, verse 10, let's read verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since the world is going to be ended, Jesus is coming again, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? If we truly trust the promise of his return, he could be coming at any time, and we need to be ready, and we need to be looking for him, we need to be waiting for him, we need to be trusting that he's coming back. How many times have I heard people say, well, Jesus can come back, but I want him to wait until such and such happens. And it's usually, it's usually young men who say, I want to get married first, and then, then comes the rapture. That's great. But Jesus comes again. That'll be great. Or maybe it's something else for you. I want to see my grandkids grow up. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see this happen in my life. I want to see that. I want to see something that I haven't seen in this world before. So let me tell you this. If you haven't seen something, I really want to see the Grand Canyon, but I know this. Heaven's going to be a whole lot better than the Grand Canyon. So, you know what, Jesus, even so, come. And we need to believe that, that Jesus is coming back, and it should change the way we live. We should be looking in anticipation. And just a quick illustration, I thought of this the other day, and it kind of hit me. I don't know if it's like this for you, and I know this is kind of even away from what we've been talking about. I'm Rabbit trail, here we go. Um, but listen, I don't know if it's like this for you, but when we have company like coming over to our house, like it becomes like, all right, frantic time, let's clean the house. When people show up, we want it to be clean and ready for company. And I started thinking about that, and I started thinking, isn't it that how we should be? We should be so urgent with our lives, the way we're living in holiness, as we're told in Second Peter, that we are living for God the best we possibly can. Not perfectly, obviously, we'll still sin, but we're pursuing righteousness and holiness that God has called us to pursue. It's like Jesus is coming to our house. Are we, worry, are we just going to let him walk into filth and disgustingness and dishes that are overflowing everywhere? Or are we going to clean the house? Are we going to be holy and living for him, living in a way that we know he's coming? And so many of us, I think, are just living in the filth and hoping when he comes, he'll just be totally overlooked. But how much better will it be if he can come and he, when he does come, he'll see us living the life that Second Peter tells us to be living, one of holiness and righteousness. So that's just, that's what's got on my mind, and I speak too much. But with all that being said, I'd like to close this time in prayer. We'll have a final song, and then I'll read uh, our benediction from this morning. So let's pray.